Welcome everyone, this is Russ Gausel, Chronicles of the End Times. So good to be with you today as we continue our study in Revelation chapter 19. As we look through the book of Revelation from chapter 1 right on through to where we are now, chapter 19, we see that the first three books are about the church, and within those three books there is description of every type of church around the world. Every church that exists today can fall into one of those seven categories that Jesus is talking about. And then we move to chapter 4. And chapter 4 is where John is called up into heaven. The Lord says to him, let me show you what's going to happen after these things. And so it's very important that we understand the original Greek words there is specifically after these things that I've just showed you. This is what's going to take place. So it's after the church era now that we're in. In chapter 4, John is taken up and shown the glory of God. And now in chapter 5, we see the Lamb of God approaching the Father. We see the worship and the praise. And here we are shown the title deed to the earth, the scroll that's there. And no one is able to take the scroll except the Lamb of God. And why is that? Because that's a title deed to the earth. And he's the one who paid the price for that. All the souls that have ever lived on the earth, he's paid the price for their sins, and he owns the earth. It is his. And so he takes the scroll. From then on, the seals are broken loose, and the judgment begins to come on the earth. In chapter 6, we see the four horsemen, as many call it, the different horses and the different colors of the horses and the riders. And the first one that comes out, is on a white horse, and we know it's not Jesus, it's the Antichrist. Remember that Satan and all his followers, all his demons, come as angels of light. And so that's the whole deception, right? We talk about the Antichrist, and to use a better description, the false Christ, because that's who really he is. And just to kind of give us an overview of where we're at, we're not going to go through every chapter and look at each one of those chapters, but we can see at this point in time, from this time of the rise of the Antichrist, seven-year period called the tribulation or Jacob's trouble, the earth begins to reel and rock. So he begins to rise in power. We know from our past study that he joins with the fallen church, and he uses that to help to rise to power. Temple is being built through this first three-and-a-half-year period because he makes a deal with Israel, the seven-year pact, which Isaiah calls a covenant of death. Then, in the three-and-a-half-year period, right in the middle, the Bible says that he declares himself God. And true Israel, those that really have a love for God, realize that this is not the way it's supposed to go. And basically, they just run for their lives. And we find that they run off into the desert. Most theologians believe that they're going to go to the city of stone or Petra in Jordan, where they will be hidden for the last three and a half years, and God will work on them just as he did before in the desert with Moses. The same kind of thing is going to happen. They're going to be provided for there. God is going to reveal himself to them, and he's going to work on them, and they're going to go through a lot before they realize who their true Messiah is. Okay, so then we move on from the three and a half years and from him declaring himself God. We move into the mark of the beast, where he begins to really flex his muscles throughout the world. By this time, he has a complete grip on all the economy of the world. He begins to use all the technology that's in the world. And we know that how much is available to us today, God only knows what's going to be available in the very near future. So he uses all those things to corral the world together. And that's when the wars begin to break out. 
because not all the nations want to join. But the majority of the people begin to fall in line and receive the mark of the beast. Through this whole last three and a half years, with all these battles taking place and God sending down his judgments on the earth, billions of people have died already in all these judgments. The world is complete disaster. All these plagues have fallen upon the earth. The water has been poisoned. Those in the springs, those in the seas. A meteorite has come and hit the earth. Earthquakes have rocked the earth from one side to the other. Complete darkness has fallen upon mankind. Yet in the middle of all this, they're still fighting and still lusting for what they want. Demonic powers will grab them all and convince them to do battle. Because this is the end. And this is the end of what darkness wants. This is the whole object of Satan is to destroy. He's a devourer. He's destroyer of the worlds. He's the destroyer of human life. So to get an even greater feel for what is going on at this time, let's turn to the book of Joel chapter 3. We hear a lot about Joel chapter 2. That's where we're at now, where Peter declared about the Holy Spirit coming down and filling people, and their sons and daughters will prophesy. The old men will dream dreams. The young men will see visions. And he's going to pour his spirit out on everyone. This is where we're at right now. But chapter 3 is a different story. He said, In those days and at that time I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter in a judgment against them concerning my inheritance in my people Israel. For they scattered my people among the nations and divided up the land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine that they might drink. God has watched all this. He's seen all this horrible destruction. He's seen the enemy just having his way, and he has tested the people of the earth, and they have failed. And they have chosen the lusts of the flesh. They have chosen to worship demons over the Lord God Almighty. To look into the hearts of these people at this point in time, we turn to Revelation 16 and just read a few excerpts out of that. Said the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given great power to scorch the people with fire, and they were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. That's verse 8. In verse 10, it says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and the waters were dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs that came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs that go out to the kings of the world to gather them to the battle of the great day of the Lord God Almighty. These are all the preliminary things that have taken place. I know it's a lot of information, and if you really want to get into it, I have other podcasts on it, and there are some wonderful books written about all this that you can study. I encourage you to do so. It's important for us to know the whole thing, the whole story. It it glorifies God in every aspect. Even in our prayer life, it makes us stronger. It gives our faith a boost. Exactly who we're praying to, that we might have more faith and believe God and trust Him further for greater things. 
So, now, after all this, are you out of breath yet? <laughs> after all this, then we get to the book of Daniel, which we're going to read out of today, which talks about the king of the north and the king of the south and who they are and how this battle begins to heat up. So, let's take a look. And those of you that have looked into Bible prophecy know how connected the book of Daniel is to the book of Revelation. So we're going to be looking into that a little bit right now. And I think it's interesting to study how this battle of Armageddon takes place. What are the keys to this battle getting underway? Daniel chapter 11 is the most amazing chapter probably in the whole book. I mean, the book is just amazing testimony of the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of Daniel and how God revealed to Daniel some of the amazing details about the major world powers to come, beginning with the Medo-Persian Empire and continuing through the time of the end just prior to Christ's return, that the focus is going to be on what's going to happen to your people in the latter days, because he told them the vision refers to many days yet to come, and that's in Daniel chapter 10, verse 14. So we know these visions are a vision of the future. In fact, Daniel chapter 11 is so intricate and the details are so amazing as to the kingdoms that came after the Medo-Persian Empire and how they developed and who was involved up until the time of the Roman Empire that many believe that it was written around the 160s BC. So their argument was that how could anybody know in such detail what was going to take place? But we know that God does know all things. In fact, in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, the Lord says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. So the prophecies we're looking at in Daniel chapter 11 came around the year 535 B.C. or so, probably three or four years, according to theologians, before Daniel passed away. So to get us underway, we're going to start reading in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. And then we'll backtrack a little bit to explain the king of the north and the king of the south. This scripture will give us some insight into what may be happening in the world at that time, just before the battle of Armageddon, and what draws the Antichrist into this battle in the other kings of the east. Keep in mind, this was written 2,500 years ago. God is glorified in the fact that he declares what's going to take place before it happens. God watches over his word to perform it. And that's what he says in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 12. So, let's read on. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god, and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people, and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries 
and sweep through them like a flood. It will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and the Nubians in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end. No one will help him. Now many people try to clean up the battle of Armageddon, saying there's not going to be any death or destruction, that Jesus is just going to come and he's going to speak a word and it's all going to be over. We know that when Jesus appears, that will be so. But the battle is going to be going on and raging before that time. In reality, if Jesus doesn't come at that moment, the world would be destroyed. Before he comes with all the armies of heaven, there's a battle that'll be raging. Well, we're going to look into the Old Testament scriptures that clearly define and describe a great slaughter. If it was a movie, you might not want to go see it. I mean, that's how uh, descriptive it is. But the truth is the truth, and we have to look through the whole Word of God. You could never teach on the last days or Bible prophecy from one book, because you have to look at the whole flow of what the Holy Spirit is saying through prophecy to the entire book of the Bible to understand all the pieces and how to put them together. So let's highlight a couple things out of this chapter. One, he will exalt himself above everything else. And we know that's true because we read that in Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 13, that it's only him. He is the one. He wants worship, and he has already declared himself God in the temple. That's probably like three years back now. We're close to the end of the seven-year period when the Battle of Armageddon takes place. So he doesn't honor any god. He's not honoring the god of his fathers. He's not honoring the god desired by women. Most people believe that that is the Messiah, the true Messiah. The women of Israel, that was their desire. That was their hope. That was their prayer, that they could be the one privileged to bear the Messiah who would deliver Israel. But instead, he's going to honor a God of fortress. Who is this God of fortress? Well, there's many ways to look at this. The Antichrist believes in a God that will give him military victory. He idolizes power. He is drunk with power. His forefathers did not recognize this new God. This future ruler will honor his God with massive expenditures for military armory. He wants to rule the world. And so what God is going to give him this power? We know that all comes from Satan, but yet he has many different names down through the Old Testament and demons that Israel worshipped that pulled their affection and their worship away from the true God, the Almighty God. In the Greek, she was known as Artemis and also known as the Astereth. You remember the Astereth poles, and they would set them up in the valleys and on the mountaintops, and they would worship this demon god, even offer their children as a sacrifice to these gods. And why is this a god of fortress? Because this particular god was ancient goddess of towers and surrounding fortifications. In ancient Greek history, citizens appealed to the goddess to protect their city when it was under threat. It's especially interesting that the ancient statuettes of the goddesses 
were cast with a figure of a tower upon their heads. They were tower goddesses or goddesses of fortress to whom was attributed the power to protect a city or an empire. So this is the demon god that he is going to be looking to and he's also going to introduce to the world. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of this foreign god. We have to imagine that all the powers of darkness are going to come to bear during this time. The prince of darkness ruling on the earth and all the demons and demon princes that have lured Israel away so many times down through history, they're all in play here. So now to the battle. Then who is this king of the south? Well, the king of the south is Egypt and a confederation of Arab nations that go with Egypt to attack the Antichrist and his army. And it could be that he's treated them poorly. It could be they're in revolt of his anarchy. It could be that even the mosque has been torn down to build the temple. Or it could be that it has been damaged. But we know for sure this battle takes place and they attack him to try to overthrow him. And the Bible tells us that his armies will engage them. They will drive out all his enemies to the south. He will take all the riches of Egypt when he does. And then he will head south. He will go further into North Africa to battle there. But at that point, he hears some bad news. He hears that there's an overwhelming army coming over the Euphrates and heading towards Israel. And so he turns his attention back to the north and he heads towards the fields of Armageddon. The people themselves have given themselves over and they want to break free from all of God's restraints. We read about it in Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let's break the chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Mount Zion, my holy hill, and I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. Aren't you glad that God is the God of everything, the universe, everything seen and unseen? This is his world. Sometimes we think it's ours, but it's not ours. The earth in its fullness belongs to the Lord. That's what the scripture tells us. Next time, we're going to look into how the battle begins to heat up. The actual battle itself is quite incredible, and there's a lot of scriptures in the Old Testament about it. So let's look at that next week. I pray that you're working in the vineyard of the Lord Jesus Christ, bearing fruit for him, and that your life is full as it can be in God. For the Lord has so much for us. Sometimes I think we live in poverty spiritually when we could be living so much richer lives as we walk with Jesus Christ. God bless. Take care. Love you all. Keep looking up. The King is coming.